I'm Grant Wall. Welcome to Football with Grant Wall. I want to thank each and every one of you for joining this new community that started with our first episode interview of Tyler Adams earlier this week. Today's guest is another great one. Julie Foudy joins me to talk about the new Netflix feature film that's going to be done on her 1999 U.S. Women's World Cup winners, among plenty of other topics. Before we get to that interview, though, a couple quick things. One, it would be absolutely huge for this podcast's growth if you could hit that subscribe button and take just a little bit of time to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts. I can't tell you how much that helps early on in a show. You guys have been absolutely amazing with that so far. Two, one of my friends from The Total Soccer Show will come back on Monday for a short recap of the weekend. Now that we have actual live soccer taking place again in the world, thank God for that. Here's my interview with Julie Foudy. Our guest today is one of my favorite people in soccer. She's a two-time World Cup champion (laughs) and a two-time Olympic gold medalist. What do you mean favorite people in soccer? What about in life, Grant? Let's (laughs) go. Let me finish my intro, Julie Foudy. She works for ESPN. (laughs) She hosts the terrific Laughter Permitted podcast. Just last week, she announced that Netflix will be making a feature film about her legendary 1999 World Cup winning team. She is Julie Foudy. Julie, thanks for coming on the show. Hi, Grant. Happy to do so. Great to have you. We have a lot to talk about. And first we do. We do. But first off, I feel like I have to start everyone, every interview like this. How are you? How is your family? We're good. Thank you. We're really good. Um, you know, comparatively, I'm not going into a hospital every day or having, you know, to to work on the front lines in any capacity. So we uh, we live here in SoCal. We've got space and we're doing a lot of hiking and biking and getting outside, a lot of PE. And most importantly, my kids are beyond needing oversight with homeschooling. They're 11 and 13. So I'm giving them full ownership. You've got this. You got it. I don't need to oversee any of it. Nice. And, uh, and that's actually saving me. I can't imagine having young kids right now <laughs> and having to deal with that and work and balance everything else. I am fired up for this Netflix feature film on the 99ers. Just got announced last week. Yeah. Give me the story. How did this movie come together? We too are very excited about it. Um, well, Ross Greenberg, who did our HBO documentary, who was formerly the president of HBO Sports, and you may remember that one, Dare to Dream. Uh-huh. He did that in, gosh, years ago, right? So decades ago and maybe 2005, six-ish. And ever since then, Ross, who I call the world's greatest feminist, has said, look, I want to do this as a movie. Ross Greenberg also did Miracle as a movie for Disney. And he has like 50, 60 some Emmys that he's won. I mean, he's a, a legend in this business. And forever, he has said to me, Jules, we're going to get this done. We're going to do a movie movie. It's going to be, you know, we're going to cast actors for this. It's going to be something that we do a theatrical release for. And so we have been talking to a lot of studios over the years. And recently, there was um, a small team that came in, Haley Stuhl, who... um, is is actually a, 
is is very young and into the business, very young and in, in the business in the, in her late twenties. She bought the rights to Drew Longman's book, The Girls of Summer, mm-hmm. and then she formed a little team with a couple women around her. Marla Messing was one of them, and Marla came to me and said, "Hey, we've got this small group of women who bought the rights to this book and want to make it a film." And I said. Well, if we're going to do it, we need to do it with Ross because he's been on this beat for forever. And he we are so loyal to Ross and him wanting to make a film out of this. And so I said, let's bring Ross into the fold and then we'll see if we can get the players into the fold as well. And so and that's the, the way it happened. So there's a, a small team of us that came together and um, and Netflix was super excited about the possibilities. and. Um, and and quickly quickly jumped on it. We're like, okay, this is this is what we want to do. This is how we want to do it. Here's what we're thinking, and so it was really neat to see their excitement for it. First question: Who's playing you? <laughs> Dolly Parton. I don't know. Um, I don't know. I mean, it's that's always a fun game. I don't even, you know, who knows if we'll have any say in that uh, and probably not, but it is a fun game to play. And, and apparently uh, the word is, is that when Netflix announced, they've got a lot of writers and directors and actors coming to them saying, Hey, we want in. We're very excited about this. So there was a lot of buzz around it. So that's neat as well. Do you actually know the whole cast and you're just not telling me right now? <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> it's already been scripted, written, casted. I'm curious why I, – obviously, I covered this uh, as a young Sports Illustrated writer back in 1999. We all know how transcendent this story became. Why do you think it took 21 years to get a movie made? I don't know. That is a great question. <laughs> I don't know because we did, we did, we went through, I mean, went through phases of pitching it, of course. And we actually had a script written in the past that we didn't love. And, you know, and we've had, it's a, it's a, it's a it was a long winding road because we had various studios, which will remain nameless who said, no, you know, I, no, we can't do this. Not yet. And then you also, it's kind of those, um, my understanding from the movie industry is it's it's not small enough that you can take on easily and it's not a blockbuster like you know we see mostly in movie theaters now i mean movie theaters are trending to it's got to be a star wars or an avengers or one of these big produ- you know hugely marketed and produced um movies for for it to make it at that level so that was one of the challenges is we kind of fit, fit into that middle range where it's, you know, not probably going to uh, get a theatrical release in a sense is it's going to be in every movie everywhere. But really what we've seen the world changing to is more of this online streaming anyways. And so um, that's where we were super excited with the potential with Netflix and their reach. Nice. So this is like international. Netflix is hugely international, which means you guys could potentially, because you and I have talked in the past about your feeling that your team in 99 had a very big impact domestically in the United States. And you felt like the 2019 team had a bigger impact internationally just with people seeing mm-hmm. it. But now, because Netflix is so global, 
Oh, we're going to be global icons. I won't even be able to walk outside. It's <laughs> it's going to be ugly. <laughs> Do you know? Is there anything else? I'll be like the last dance. I'll have my I'll have my crew of security people, <laughs> like Jordan. I mean, do you? Know, I'll have my Gus. Are there any other details you can you can share about this? When is it coming out? Uh, do we know? So um, the the process is is similar to getting a movie signed, which was long and windy. is is also long. It's you know you got, we're gonna rewrite it again, so we have to hire a, a writer, a script writer. Uh, then the script has to get approved. You go through all the revisions of that. They actually, the writer, once um, she or he is hired, will uh, sit down with the eight of us um, who uh, are part of the life rights part of the deal, the eight that were on the video, and and go through all of that, you know, learning and talking and sharing stories. And, um, and so then they have to cast it once they get a script. Okay, so it's... I think it's probably a couple of years out is my guess, but I'm, I'm not a pro in this business. It may be beyond my pay grade to say that, but I, I do think it's, it, you know, it's it, rather than months, it's more like years. I'm not a pro in this business as well. So when I was reading like the Hollywood reporters you know, write up about this, they said that eight of you sold your life rights and the term life rights is kind of crazy. I mean, like what, what do you actually sell? So I, yeah, I, I, they, they offer an amount of money, right. To the eight of you so that, um, they have the, the rights to tell this story, okay. um, as a group, as a 99ers. And so they, you know, they signed, um, with, and it's, it's, it's not that secret anymore. The eight of us that were in that video. So Mia, myself, Akers, Brandy, Christine Lilly, Carla, Joy, and Bri, right? Joy Fawcett and Brianna Scurry. But because we have always, as you know, Grant, felt uh, very strongly about the fact that this was a group of 20 and not a group of a few of us, like our success is because that 20 was such a strong unit. We said, look, we understand you're signing these rights with the eight of us, but we want everyone to be paid. So um, everyone on the 20 gets paid because that was something that was huge to all of us. And, um, and so that was fun too, because we got to announce that to the larger group who um, didn't know that that was happening and to hear their reaction was really fun as well. That's fantastic. Very cool gesture. Um, yeah. Yeah. They, well, it's, it's not really cause it's, you know, none of this is possible without the group of 20. So well, I think that says something for your team and what it symbolized back then and, and what it continues to symbolize today. So um, I'm going to totally change the subject here. I am excited about the movie whenever it does come out, but I want to ask you about <laughs> the latest in the current U.S. Women's National Team's gender discrimination lawsuit. Mm -hmm. The main equal pay claims were dismissed recently by the federal judge. What was your initial reaction to that? It depends what hat I'm wearing because I wear a lot of different hats, right? So my player hat reaction was, of course, incredible sadness for them and losing the, essentially that entire compensation piece of the fight. And so, and that comes from just my history, right? Like I know how hard it is. I know the courage it took for them to 
to wage this fight and to do it in the middle of a World Cup, to do it when they still have, even with the tremendous support they do get from the public, they still get a lot of people on the other side saying, you're crazy. What are you fighting for? Why are you doing this? And it's just a distraction. It's an energy drain. Even if you know you are as good as they are at compartmentalizing it all. So I was super sad for them when I think about the struggles we've had, you know, over the years as well and what we fought for. Um, but when I put on my reporter and analyst hat, I, you know, I also had for months as you had Grant talked to a lot of legal experts who said, you know, their case isn't that great, honestly. And I'd say, why? Why do you say that? Because the period the judge is looking at, right, they actually, if U.S. soccer's numbers are right and they'll look at this, they actually are in, you know, comparatively, they're in the ballpark or they're making more than the men. And um, and I would say, yeah, but because they've won two World Cups and uh, essentially everything and the men didn't qualify is why they're in the ballpark of the men. And they said, yeah, but that's what the judges tasked with looking at is that five-year phase, right? And if the men had qualified for the World Cup, then they would have brought more revenue in. So even then, the women would have lost the revenue argument. Um, And so I did have a lot of legal minds saying to me, the court of public opinion is very different than the court of legal opinion, as we saw. And so from an analyst reporter side, I wasn't entirely shocked or surprised by it as much of the public was because I had heard from so many that I wouldn't let this go to trial. I would settle. I would, you know, I I heard from a lot of people. I hope the players sit down. And and I think a lot of us were hopeful. I think a lot of us were hopeful that uh, they would have a chance to get to the table. I think U S soccer was in a position where they really felt they needed to get to the table when Carlos Cordero was still president, right? I think he understood that, shoot, this is a, this is a no win situation for us. Even if we, in in air quotes, win the trial or portions of the trial. And this is of course, before the judge ruled in us soccer's favor, he would, you know, I think he felt that it's a no win situation from a a PR standpoint and, and especially given, you know, how they botched that 2,600-page brief, which, you know, essentially argued that women aren't just inherently different, they're inherently inferior, which I think was a poor, terrible judgment on their part. Um, and you could see how their sponsors reacted as well. So they knew that this was a no-win situation. And, and that's where I'm saddened because I think the women had a chance in that moment especially to get to the table and really make some progress on where their position was and where this ended. And and I think they've lost that leverage, of course. Yeah. I guess my only surprise was that it was a summary judgment dismissal as opposed to losing in court. It wouldn't surprise me if they had lost, right. if it had gone to court, but just, I don't know how many mm-hmm. people were expecting summary judgment. Um, where do you think this case goes from here? It's, it's not totally thrown out, but the equal pay part was. Right. 
Well, the women have appealed, of course, and I think they've asked the judge to hold off on those, you know, few things that he still needs to rule on, which are basically discrepancies in travel, transportation, hotels, some of the laundry list of things the woman had said outside of compensation, but have to deal with just equal treatment more. Um, and, you know, my understanding is I I read the other day, I think it was from Stephen Bank, that the the average uh, appeal in the Ninth Circuit takes 23 months. So you're looking at two two more years of this possibly. Um, and the flip side of that is, is if I'm a current player, I'm looking at how the landscape of the Federation has changed. You now have a president who is a woman and not just a woman, is a former player, a 99er in Cindy Parlo Cohn, who's lived this, she knows very well, as we and the movie will talk about how many years we battled U.S. soccer and what we fought for and how contentious and angry and heated it got. And so you also have a new CEO in, in Will Wilson, who seems that he's willing with some of his statements, I haven't talked to him, um, willing to to talk and to, to come to some agreement. So I think with those two in place, I, I think, well, what's the downside? It's no concession of loss, right? It's, it's not that um, you're any less courageous. You're sitting down trying to make headway. And so I'm hopeful that they will come to Cindy and will and say, you know, human to human, let's talk this out. Let's tell you, as you know, Cindy, what we're, you know, we're going through and why this is so important to us. And then they can also hear the Federation side, because beyond the women losing some leverage with the court ruling, obviously, you know, no one knows what's going to happen with this pandemic and where this is going to leave the Federation economically with COVID-19 and how long it will last. And so you have all that uncertainty as well. So I, I just hope that they can sit down because I will tell you, and I've told the current team this as well, that the only thing that moved the needle back in the day that actually created change was when Carla, Mia, myself, you know, and our leadership team of players with John Lango, we sat at the table with Sunil or Alan Rothenberg and said to you know Sunil, look, this is this is why, in very heated manners, this is why this matters, and this is why it drives us crazy, and this and this and this. And I can remember Alan Rothenberg and Sunil going, "Oh, okay, I get that, I understand that, and here's our side of it." And then you start to make progress, and and I just. You know, I've always been convinced human to human rather than lawyer to lawyer is is a better way to go. And really, they haven't had that opportunity, Grant. Like, they had some mediation where it was very formal, right? Like, I present my side to the mediator, and then they present their side to the mediator. But, like, get that out of the way. And I'm not saying you don't have to do it without lawyers, because there was a time in our negotiation process where U.S. soccer would be like, why do you need a lawyer? Really? I mean, like, yeah, it's kind of important. We do need a lawyer. So I would never say don't have your lawyers present, but let the players do the talking and let them do the talking, not the lawyers. So that's the case itself. Moving forward, 
Do you think, I, I like the idea of the U.S. women's team and the U.S. men's team doing their next CBA jointly with U.S. soccer. Because we've yes. seen that in, what is it, Norway and New Zealand and I think Australia too. And do you think that could work? I do. I I think, and I've said this for months, I think the way forward is to bring those two sides together, the men and the women's players association and say to us soccer, look, let's take a percentage of this revenue pot, right? How you define revenue pot is the real sticking point of course, in all of this, because does that include FIFA money? Does it not? Which is the real differentiator as we know, I would argue you take all the revenue. So you take sponsorship rights, you take broadcasting rights, you take gate revenue, you take FIFA money as well. You put it in the pot and you take a percentage of that. Obviously, you're not going to give the whole pot to the men or the women because they have youth programming and they have other teams they need to fund. And there's a lot of other programming that's super important that U.S. soccer does. You take a percentage of that pot and you split it evenly amongst the men and the women. And then they decide how they want to structure it, right? And we all know there's been a lot of discussion about the different types of contracts, right? The women having more of a guaranteed contract because they didn't make a lot of money on the men's professional side, like the men professional players were from their clubs. So let them and the association decide how they want to split that pot. But people have already said to me, you're crazy. The FIFA money's too large on the men's side. The men are never going to give that up. But I would argue, well, now you could say, the the sponsorship money the women bring in is much larger than the men. So they're giving that up and you can't quantify that because it goes into one pot and U.S. soccer doesn't split it. But you could easily, I think, show that people probably recognize more the women's team than the men's team right now. And that, of course, is going to change over time. This is a rebuilding phase. They didn't qualify for the men. You're going to get new personalities and characters that step forward. Um, and so, but I do think you could make the argument that women obviously bring in more sponsorship revenue right now. So, and then Grant, you're all on the same page. You're, you know, the men being successful means the women win and the women being successful means the men win. And now we're cheering for each other rather than against each other. And so I'm super hopeful because I think it's what the game needs. I'm, kind of like in life and politics right now, I'm tired of fighting and division and all of that. And I'd rather just sit around a campfire and sing Kumbaya. I'm excited about possibilities there. Cause <laughs> I had Carly Lloyd on the podcast last month and she actually proposed having uh, camps with the men's team in the same vicinity, maybe yeah. once a year um, and wanting to get to know yeah. the, the men's players and support them a little better. It, yeah. The the men's team, their their core players are mostly younger now. They're in their early twenties. Right. Whereas I think but right. that shouldn't be a huge impediment, I don't think, just because the women's players are, are maybe slightly older. Um I do like the symbolism, by the way, that Gio Reyna, the seventeen year old, is uh who's like doing, you know, really promising things in Germany right now, yeah. is the son of two former national yeah. team players, Claudia Reyna and Danielle, who Right, they told me right. met each other when the the national teams, both men's and women's, were sharing a hotel in California in '94. 
Oh, really? I didn't Which, know that's how they originally met. Yeah, so like, I'm not, I'm not arguing that we should have... Yeah, we could create the next generation of players. They should do that. this once a year. I am not right? Same hotel. Super team. <laughs> CG Arena. I think that's a tremendous idea. Um, yeah, well, I mean, and, and I think there was more interaction back in the day because... We used to do, and and maybe I'm wrong here, but we used to do a ton of appearances together, right? Mm-hmm. So Landon and Kobe and Harks and Alexi and all those guys that were my era, Tab. I mean, we would all do stuff with them for appearances. And I, I don't see that as much anymore. So, and we need more Geo Reinas out there. <laughs> um, I want to ask you about the Olympics. Obviously, the Olympics aren't happening this year. They've been rescheduled for next year. Do you think the Olympics will happen next year? And how how do you see this delay registering itself maybe with who might or might not go for the U.S. women's team? Yeah. I I honestly don't see it hurting the women's team at all. Um, because I think, if anything, I think it actually helps them because, I mean, there's a reason no one has – won a women's world cup and then won the very next year at the Olympics. It's a super tight, tough turnaround. And the women were exhausted. I mean, the, on top of, you know, all the promotional sponsorship obligations they had, they had that victory tour as well, which is a contractual thing that we actually started back in our day because we wanted to make some money off of the success at a world cup because we knew us soccer wasn't going to do anything. So anyways, they had to buy us out of our own tour, and that's how the victory tour started for the national team. They've now you know, dropped it to five games, but it's a lot of travel, and it takes away from you know them having to double up with NWSL duties as well. It takes them away from NWSL. So they're exhausted coming into November, December, and instead of getting a break, they have to qualify for the Olympics in January, so they can't take a break. So I think actually the U.S. team was like, oh, phew especially Alex Morgan, who, you know, just had a baby and that would have been a super tight turnaround if she were to make it. Um, but in terms of whether they happen or not, I mean, the latest I've been reading and seeing is that unless there's a vaccine and you would know more about this, uh, because of who you're married to grant than, than me, that if, unless there's a vaccine, that there's not a, a, a high likelihood of the Olympics happening next year. And my understanding is from listening to experts like your wife, that there is, um, there is a considerable time still for a vaccine to come into place. Yeah, no, that's, that's true. Fingers crossed. By the way, I think your 2000 Olympic team, if they'd actually called the handball that they didn't call on the Norwegian forward on the winning goal. Oh, thank you. That you guys yes. would have been the first team to win the World Cup and the Olympics in successive Thank years. you. I remember this stuff. Not that I think about that moment very often or get cold sweats about it. I wake up at night going, <gasps> <sighs> I love your podcast, by the way. Laughter permitted. You're in season three. I am part of your dope village of listeners oh you are um, thank you you had a really good mix thank of guests you. it's so much fun. yeah no i mean it's it's not yeah. just soccer players it's like amy van dyken your most recent guest just really interesting people um good interviews yeah 
How did you make the decision to do your own podcast? My co-host and producer, Lynn Olzawi, is a producer I have at ESPN, who we did a ton of features together. And she would sit down, and when we'd stop the cameras down after um, an interview, I would sit there and chat with the athlete for a while, and we would start riffing and laughing and talking about you know nonsense. And she would say to me afterwards, that's the stuff we should put on a podcast. That's what people want to hear. Like that stuff's amazing. You, we should do a podcast. And I was like, yeah, right. Good one. There are a bazillion podcasts out there, Lynn. Like how do you even break through into that world? There's just it's too crowded a space. No. And she kept at it. Like, no, seriously, Jules, we could do it. Come on. I'm going to buy the equipment. We'll, we'll set up a test pod Get Mia and Carrie Walsh, your buddies, to do it. We'll do a pet test pod with them. We'll send it to ESPN. I mean, ESPN had no idea we were even thinking this way, or she was thinking this way. So literally two years into it, I mean, two years later from her, the first time she brought it up, I finally was like, all right, all right, let's do it. So Mia and Carrie Walsh, who both live blocks from each other in Manhattan Beach, kindly both agreed to be our guinea pigs and of course they're dear friends and said yeah we'll sit down with you and so we sent these two we sit, we sat with them separately we sent these two test pods into um espn and lynn because lynn and i had been working together doing features we had like some little fun things we'd always do in features like most pressing questions at the end of a feature or we do these silly segments we're like oh maybe we could take some of those and bring them over to the pod and um, anyway, so we, we pitched it to ESPN and, and this is the beauty of ESPN, honestly, that, you know, it, I'm always throwing spaghetti at the wall or shit at the fan, if you want to say it that way, but I am constantly throwing stuff at them. Like, what do you think of this? And they're always willing, bless them to go. Yeah, let's show it to me. What do you got? And so we did that. And Connor Shell, who's tremendous and a tremendous supporter of women's sports and soccer. He's married to a soccer player, so he has no choice. Uh, he, he, uh, he's like, I like it. And the podcast group we got on and, uh, and you know, and at, when we first pitched our podcast to ESPN, their podcast listeners were 96% men. Wow. And we said to them, we're going to flip that model. And I think they probably thought we were crazy. We're like, we're going to show you there's a um, women's sports listener out there. Well, there's sports listeners that are women. We're going to show you that they can come in high percentages. And so we have done that. We're 92% women. Um, we've, you know, interviewed all trailblazing women, not just sports figures. I mean, we've done Robin Roberts and Katie Couric and other, other women, but, um, it's been neat to see and a super young demo as well. So it's a demo that they don't reach clearly. And, um, and we just found out we're only like 30 some episodes in. We, we've, we just crossed the 1 million download mark, wow. which is cool. Congrats. So we've had over 1 million downloads. So yeah, so it's crushing it. So it's, and they're thrilled because it's a demo that they have a hard time getting to, honestly. Now I am always fascinated. And it's fun. Yeah, and I eat like donuts fun. and drink wine. And sing. <laughs> I mean, we call this a job. You want me to eat donuts and drink wine? Okay. Yes. I mean, I'm always fascinated too. Like, you're obviously having fun on the podcast, but like the art of interviewing, the craft of interviewing, and you've been on both sides of it over the years. 
uh, as a player being interviewed and then doing the interviewing. Mm. And I'm wondering, what have you learned about interviewing as you've made that journey into where you're the interviewer? I mean, I think so much of it is I listened to, and, and it's different for what's nice about podcasts and what honestly frustrated me a little bit with television is with television, it, it depends what your feature's for, right? It, and everything's different. So longer form stories that OTL or E60 do that take these, you know, they're four hour interviews you're doing with athletes and you're taking a deep dive into every single thing. And, and it's clearly less about the reporter as it always should be. And it should be about the person you're interviewing. So there's not a lot of back and forth like you can do on a podcast. It's much more, you know, obviously there's follow-up questions, but there's not, you can't be riffing and having fun and, you know, and it's so hard to edit a piece like that. So the thing that is um, freeing, if that's the right word, (laughs) in a sense with podcasts is it's more like you're sitting around a table having a conversation with someone. And that's an easier style to, in my opinion, to take a deeper dive because it's more natural. It's not lights in your face. It's not a camera in your face, even though there's a microphone. It's often us sitting when we could do it around a dining room table with donuts and we're sitting around a table and we're just chatting. And the the thing I have to be careful of because I can get a bit overwhelming with my energy and enthusiasm for, you know, just conversations and topics is shutting the hell up sometimes. Right. Whereas Len will be like, no, no, no. I want you to talk more. I'm like, no, that is drives me crazy. If it's like just that person interrupting all the time, who's interviewing, I want to hear from Amy Van Dyken, or I want to hear from Simone Biles. I don't want to hear from Julie. Um, but the right balance of when to interject to lift the energy or when to lighten it or when to take a deeper dive. And so those are all the things I'm still learning with podcasts, which are so different from TV where you can't interject as much. Uh, but it's, it's just, it's amazing when you don't have a camera in someone's face, even though there is a microphone, how much more comfortable and how much deeper you can get, which, you know, having done this as well. It's a very different experience. No, definitely. Uh, one thing I've noticed about your media career is it's not just soccer. I mean, obviously, you do the the broadcasts on ESPN for women's national team games. Uh, you're still interviewing soccer people on your podcast, but it's not all soccer. Was was that important to you when mm. you started doing this media thing to to yeah. go beyond? Yeah, soccer? for sure. Yeah. I mean, you come into an industry because you're known for something, right? So, so many analysts come into television because they play in that sport. And so they want to stick you into that peg because it fits and you're going to be an analyst because this is what you did and this is what you know. And I always came with the mindset and which is why I think um, I've enjoyed ESPN so much because they have so much diversity in programming. I've always come in saying, I don't just want to do soccer. Like, I don't want to be a sideline reporter and no offense against sideline reporters, but that would peg me into soccer forever. Even if I did it for both men and women, I don't want to do, um, just, just be an analyst. And so what I've enjoyed with the broadcasting side of it and why I think I've stayed in it so long is I have been able to do other things. I've been able to write, I've been able to do features on different athletes and stories and topics and, um, the podcast, which interviews a you know, variety of different sports.
sports and athletes and people and, um, and, and little league world series, or, you know, just, I've been able to diversify. And that to me is so much fun. The Olympics. So, and that's, I think, um, part of my enjoyment of it all is it's a challenge. It's, I mean, soccer is familiar. It's what I know. And so it is easier in a sense. I mean, it's still a lot of preparation and you're still having to put the time in, but I like the challenge of not knowing a sport or having to cover something in a different way or, uh, you know, discover a whole different side of things I didn't know, which is always so fun. One of my favorite stories you did was a very serious story. So you weren't laughing. You weren't singing on this one. It was this 2015 story <laughs> on artificial turf fields and crumb rubber oh, and gosh, yeah. the potential link and concerns about it, that link to cancer. And it won awards. It was a terrific investigative story. Um, is there any update in the last five years about what that story was about? Yeah. I mean, we've tried to, it's funny you mentioned that because during all of this shutdown time, you know, you start thinking about, okay, I can finally spend some time on stories I haven't been able to spend time on. And that's one that we've been trying to do some follow-ups. We've been trying to um, figure out if there's a corresponding list out there for football players, for example, who are in and on artificial turf a lot and they're in it, right? Like one of the issues with the soccer was the goalkeepers are constantly diving in it. They're on it. They're in it. They've, you know, they come home with it in their ears and in their nose and it's falling out of every orifice practically. And so it's being absorbed into cuts and wounds and all those things that um, sometimes regular field players aren't experiencing in that sense. And so we have tried to do some follow-up on football. We weren't able – I mean, some of the beauty of that first story was Amy Griffin had that list of – coincidentally, she started realizing she was a former U.S. women's national team goalkeeper. She started realizing that, gosh, it seems like there's a lot of goalkeepers coming to me with this same issue of lymphomas or cancers or blood-related cancers, that, and they're all goalkeepers. And so she just started – keeping this list organically and that grew and grew and grew and grew. And of course it has grown since the story. Um, we haven't had that success on the football side um, or that list on the football side. And so that was harder to track. So we started doing that story. We've had some actually offshoots of it that we've pursued, but we just haven't been able to put the time in, but there, there will be, I hope a follow up to that 2015 story. For sure. We're winding down here with Julie Foudy. Appreciate you taking this much time, Jules. Um, Want to ask you. Anything for you, buddy. You and I are still in our 40s. Uh, I'd like to think we have we have some productive <laughs> years on. left. We're holding on. <laughs> what do you still want to do in your career? Um, that's a great question. I, You know, I, I always think the 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 constant um the constant tug i have in me is that um i feel like what i'm doing i'm super blessed and i get to go to all these incredible events and i get to cover all these amazing people and it fits with my personality like i'm so happy i went into this field cuz i'm curious and i want to interview people and i want to talk to people and i want to find out more and i want to share their stories but I also have this tug of, am I doing enough 
to make the world a better place, which is always advocacy has always been such a huge part of who I am going back to my days with the national team and wanting to, or the women's sports foundation or, um, and just being an advocate for women playing more. And, and so I, I find myself in, especially during this quarantine, like thinking like, what could I be doing more of in my next phase of life that actually contributes to society in a larger sense? And that doesn't mean politics because people always say that to me, why don't you go into politics? And, um, and I, I, I'm not interested in that, but I'm interested in policy and just getting involved with groups that, um, seem to make this world a better place. Cause I, I just, I'm constantly, uh, finding myself and maybe it's a consequence of the time, but I'm, I am saddened by the discourse and the division and, just um, how I feel like we could be doing so much more as a country and as a, you know globally to bring everyone together rather than divide. And I don't know what that looks like, but it's something I constantly am thinking about during this quarantine. Like there's, I just I gravitate to those who are doing incredible work in all these different fields that um, that are bringing around empathy and humanizing people and actually bringing people together in a good way and showing that, you know, humanity is stronger when we're together. Didn't you consider going to med school back in the day? Yeah, I did. I was, I was going to med school and I deferred for two years and, um, and I just decided not because of soccer, but that just, I didn't want to be a doctor. I felt it was too confining in terms of, um, you know, this one path, like I, I bounce around too much, too much ADD. So you're that. not going to do the, uh, uh, the late, the late yeah. track, uh, med school starting <laughs> oh, next year. Hell no. All caps. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I have tremendous respect for your wife and those who are doing it right now, but no, no, no. A couple more really quick questions about your last broadcast with ESPN for the U S women's national team. Feels like it was 10 years ago, it was in March, um, but it was one of the most memorable broadcasts I can remember, especially since I wasn't expecting that coming in. And you guys, you and Sebi Salazar just did a remarkable job in real time, you know, right before everyone goes into lockdown and it's right as U.S. soccer had that legal strategy that was offensive to so many people and sponsors it was the day before Carlos Cordero resigned as president. And you had this really great pointed halftime opinion segment. What, what are you going to remember from that night and that broadcast? <laughs> um, well, I, you know, it was like one of the last live games that was played. I think basketball was played the next day, but literally like sports shut down after that. And so we're in a stadium in Dallas, 20,000 people. And, um, the thing I actually remember from that broadcast is towards the end of the broadcast, Sebastian looked at me and, you know, you're live on a game and you can't hear each other because you got your headsets on and you can't talk because obviously it's going out to the world on the telecast. And he points to his phone and he puts like his finger up, like, and I'm like, what? And he points to his phone. Like, I need to read this on air. And I was like, Oh God what is this? Like, we had no idea. I wasn't checking my phone because I'm calling a game. I don't know what's coming. Apparently 
Neil Beathy had been texting us that they were going to give us an update um, from Carlos Cordero on air. So it's a statement from Carlos Cordero apologizing for, you know, the approach the legal approach they took in that 2,600 page brief. And I just was having none of it. I was like, Oh my God. And it was literally us reacting on air to a statement that both of us were hearing for the first time. And Sebastian was reading for the first time. And, um, and I was not happy with it, obviously. Um, my reaction was, you know, I had to literally like gather myself for a couple seconds. I think I took a big, long sigh. And I mean, because what he was saying, I felt felt a bit disingenuous in that, you know, I'm sorry that we came forward with this legal statement and I'm sorry that we took this position because I felt that there were too many at the Federation who knew this was happening already. This was a legal position they had been taking in depositions that had been going on for months. And so to come out and say after the fact, oh, we didn't know was, um, was not entirely true. And maybe he hadn't read the full brief, but as president, I'm surprised if you're not getting that brief. And I know they're doing an internal investigation as to how that happened. U S soccer is. And to, you know, how that was that was uh, able to get through and how Lydia, their chief of their chief counsel, their general counsel um, thought that was a good idea. But yeah, that was that was an interesting. You know, you get that sometimes on air where it's like, you know, a statement's being read to you live and you're having to react to it. And that's when you get the real <laughs> raw emotion of it. You don't have time to process. It's like, ah. This is when my player hat came out. <laughs> One last question. And I, I'll ask this to Sebi Salazar, who's a good friend of mine uh, as well so at some point. When he says on Kristen Press's goal, Kristen Press, what have you done? Is that natural? Is that <laughs> practiced? What's your take on that? <laughs> I actually have said this a couple of times now that I've called more games with Sebastian. You know, his goal calls, which are you know, in his true Hispanic fashion, I actually start giggling. I have to hit the talk back button on full disclosure. I get giggling and watching him. Like I wish I, I actually said I should have had my camera out and filmed him because he literally gets into this crouched squat position, full soul into it. They are not scripted. It is true Sebi, and it is beautiful. I, I, I have to hit the talk back button, which which cuts my mic because I get laughing at him. I'm like, that is the best. What was this? What was this press one again? Kristen Press, what have you done? <laughs> what have you done? I think they made a shirt. They of did. It. I'll wear that shirt next uh, time. <laughs> well, great. Julie Foudy. Yeah, I love, I love, I love his emotion. Julie Foudy is the host of the Laughter Permitted podcast. You can see her on ESPN. She covers U.S. women's national team games. And she has a movie coming out with her 99er teammates on Netflix. Can't wait for that one. Julie, thanks so much for joining me. Hey, Grant, more importantly, I can't wait to see you soar in your next adventure, buddy. Because whoever gets you next... They're lucky. Thank you. And and there'll be a fight for you. <laughs> Get through this pandemic. It's going to be like elbows up. Who gets grand? And may it be us. Oh, Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>